All right, so Revelation 4, 6 is where we were last time. We're going to just kind of back up to keep the context a little bit uh, and look at verse 6 one more time because there were some things that we never did get to quite finish on that. Um, and so Revelation 4, 6 says this, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now we talked about the sea of glass being that brazen labor that you see here that uh, it was often called the sea. And so every aspect of what we've been seeing described in this chapter in many parts we see in the tabernacle and now we're seeing it in heaven which makes sense as we talked about last time that the tabernacle was a picture of what heaven is. That's what Hebrews tells us. And tonight, though, I want to look a little bit more at these four living creatures. Now, right now, it doesn't say cherubim. It doesn't say seraphim. It says four living creatures. And typically, we always attach this to these are the cherub because we see that in the most holy place, there were these cherub that would be right at the Ark of the Covenant, which is a picture of the throne of God. And we see in Psalm 99, verse 1, and this is just a few, every time we see the throne of God, the cherubim are there. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherub. Let the earth shake. Or Psalm 80, verse 1, you who sit enthroned between the cherub shine forth. And so... The throne is there, the cherub are on both sides. But now what we just read is they were in front and in back above. We're going to see above, we're going to see below. It's all around the throne that we see these cherubim being there. And in some cases, the seraphim. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference of those here tonight as well. Um, but just know that they're always at his throne. Now, just to give you a little bit of a recap of what we talked about last time, but I think it's, I just want you to see this as we're looking at this picture and as you're getting this picture in your mind. Like I said, this is a model of heaven. The cherub are at the throne. In the tabernacle, we see the cherub are at the mercy seat or the throne of God. What is pictured is that. You see a sea that is before the throne in Revelation. In the tabernacle, there was the sea that was outside before the throne and all of those kinds of things. We see here in Revelation, thunder. In the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway, we see that when God spoke, his voice would often thunder, like at Mount Sinai and so on. Um, the doors of the tabernacle, we're going to talk about this towards the end, but when they would open the doors of the tabernacle or later the temple, there were trumpets that were blown. We see here that there are trumpets that are going to be blown when the the doors are opened, as we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, we see that, uh, as I said, the throne is the Ark of the Covenant, basically. Precious stones all around. In the tabernacle, the priests had worn these precious stones. They had silver as the foundation of the tabernacle. Um, gold. And in Revelation here, we're seeing gold streets. You'll see later. <clears throat> but precious stones, the same stones that are described in the priest's uh, ephod. We see a rainbow 
because not only the stones, but light as a rainbow. And uh, that's just kind of, I think, part of the same thing there. We also see here tonight, there's uh, 24 elders that are going to fall down to worship God. Well, in the tabernacle, there were 24 stations where they would uh, basically uh, have to do their job. And I'm going to show you a verse later, too, that David even put 24,000 priests as workers in the, tab er, in the temple. And so this 24 is, I think, also significant. I don't understand all the reasons, but we're seeing, I mean, it is, what, what's in heaven is what was pictured here on earth. That's the, the goal that I want you to see here. Um, we saw that there is the menorah in the tabernacle, seven lamps. Here earlier in the chapter, there were the seven lamps that were going. So, again, it is just perfect in every way. So, back to the cherub, though, to focus in on that. I am going to take you to Ezekiel. I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. We're going to look at two chapters in Ezekiel tonight. One is chapter 1 and one is chapter 10. And the reason that is is because this is going to give you a more detailed understanding of these cherubim. And even Isaiah, which is going to show us a little more detail about the seraphim. And so uh, just take this in because I think this is in essence what is being seen here in Revelation. We just don't get all of these details in Revelation. So you can, I think, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, attach this stuff to the book of Revelation. It says this, The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. Same description. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces. So each had four faces and four wings. Note the four wings. That's going to be different. We're going to see in Revelation six wings. So we'll talk about maybe why that is in a second. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. In the ark, or in the tabernacle, the wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. So each one of these has four faces. Not four creatures, four faces. Four creatures, 16 faces. All right? Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings. One touching the wing of another creature on either side. Just as I said in the most holy place. The two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead, whenever the, or wherever the Spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature. Now, before I leave this, this lightning fascinates me. Notice 
how it says that they had the appearance of coals of fire or like torches. This is what we saw in Exodus 20 verse 18 when the Ten Commandments are being given. Fascinating, we see in Scripture, we often think God giving the Ten Commandments, but it says in the Scriptures that it was delivered by angels. What are cherubim? Angels. We see that there was thunderings and lightnings at Mount Sinai. We see thunderings and lightnings here in heaven. Why? Possibly because just what it's describing here, these cherubim are like lightning. Okay, that might have been more like Star Wars, but you know, <laughs> lightning. Amazing. And so I can't even in my mind fathom this, but I just, you know, I see some, you know, four angels just kind of rolling around on these wheels back and forth, but it is lightning fast that they're moving around. Okay? So it goes on, each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. Which is interesting because you've got four faces. So they can go in any direction. Now notice how they're moving. Are they flying? No, it's the wheels that make them move. So as they moved, they would go in any of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome. All four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. When the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creature was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. So above these creatures spread out is like a sky of glass, crystal, or something like that, okay? Sparkling like ice. That's what we've also seen as a description here in Revelation, what looks like a sea of glass and all of that kind of thing. This may be a picture then of that, the bronze sea. Anyway, it goes on. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. Just take note, under the expanse, that is where these are. That's going to be important. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. So when they're moving, the sound of rushing waters, we heard that in you know, the description of God. You're going to see it again. There's going to be a voice like rushing waters, thunderings. The very same thing. And it seems like the cherubim is the source of many of these voices, torches, lightnings, thunderings, that kind of thing. It goes on. Um, when they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. 
above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire and high above on the throne was a figure that like that of a man so after this description is going to go on and it's going to describe this man that's sitting on the throne much like we just read in the book of revelation as well in chapter one and so i just again this is an example of you can't understand revelation without the rest of the Old Testament. And people will read Revelation and talk about these four living creatures and oh, whatever. If you don't attach it to these, you can just lose it in symbolism. These are real creatures on a, at a real throne, and that's real thundering, real lightning, real sounds, real glory being given. So, um, we're going to jump to Ezekiel 10. And... This is where you're going to get some more details. This is probably where you get the most detail about these uh, creatures is in Ezekiel and in Isaiah 1 chapter. Now, so far, it seems that we've been seeing the, the cherub. The cherub, the difference between them and seraph, the most, and I don't even know if this is going to be exactly a great way to describe it, but the cherub seem to have four wings. The seraph are going to have six wings, two extra wings. The cherub always seem to be under the expanse, under the throne. The seraph always seem to be above. Those are the only differences that I have been able to see. There's so many similarities between them. Sometimes it almost seems like it's, they're one and the same. But yet there are those two differences. So just kind of notice here. And I looked and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to a man clothed with linen and said, go in among the wheels under the cherub. So here we're seeing that these four, the four living creatures or the, what was called living creatures in chapter one are identified as cherub here. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Later, we're going to see an angel is going to go in Revelation and take coals from the altar and throw it down on the earth. That's what we're seeing here. So when this happens, keep that verse in mind here, all right? And he went in, and as I watched, now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and passed or paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard, even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Like rushing waters, Ezekiel 1 had told us before. So... Um, it continues in verse 6, Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. Interestingly, when we read about this in Revelation, it seems like they're going to the cherubim under the altar to get these coals. He went in and stood beside the wheels, and the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim. He took some of it, put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. 
The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, and their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that, had, that the four had were full of eyes all around. So now we're getting more details. There's eyes not just on the wheels or the rims. But as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. <laughs> Verse 14, each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man. The third face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Kibar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. So some repetition, but a few extra details. So when we think of angels, um, Satan was called in Ezekiel a cherub. He was one of the cherubim. This is what Satan was. And it was on account of his beauty that he fell in part. Ezekiel 28, we'll talk about that. Well, these faces, I'm going to kind of focus on that first. These four faces. Interestingly, the Jews speak in their writings that there are four angels, they say, round about God's throne. And they say their names of them are Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, and Raphael. They say Michael was on his right hand, Gabriel on his left, Uriel in front, and Raphael behind. Now again, this is just Jewish teaching, um, but... It goes on, they say, and holy, blessed God in the middle. Now, what I find fascinating about this is what we've been talking about with the tabernacle and the temple again is, remember, they camped out. So if you'd have flown over the, the tabernacle, it would have looked like a cross in the wilderness. But notice who you have here on the tribes that are on the, you know, the first tribe on each north, east, west, and south. You have Reuben. Reuben, Judah, Dan, and Ephraim. They all had banners that were presented. And do you know what the pictures are of those four tribes? Reuben is a man. Judah is a lion. Then you have Ephraim as an ox and Dan as an eagle. So the very four faces of these creatures are the same faces that were facing the tabernacle or the throne of God. So even that, we're seeing a picture of why they camped where they camped. So why these faces? Um, there's a lot of ideas out there, but I think that there could be some truth to it. Uh, the face of a man. Uh, Matthew, uh, when we went to college, I was taught that the four Gospels are attached to these four pictures as well. 
Now, I can't find anywhere in Scripture that says Matthew is the man, but we do see a theme in the book of Matthew. And that theme of Matthew is even seen as it begins. Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew is focused on Jesus as the son of man. And so they often will attach a picture of a man to the gospel of Matthew as well. And like I said, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it's interesting. Mark is often viewed as a lion because he begins the gospel with a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, like a lion type thing, the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the prophecies of that. We see Luke is oftentimes pictured as an ox um, because he begins with Zechariah, the priest, who, you know, an ox being a sacrificial animal um, that, that was offered at the temple. John is seen as an eagle because he is a very high style prose. He soars above the rest. He's, it's so different than the, the others. Uh, focuses on the divinity of Christ, the, the spreading of the word quickly, that kind of thing. So again, maybe. I don't see anything in scripture, but nonetheless, that is what is often taught. It's just interesting that these are used at least Biblically, we can see some connection to the tribes of Israel. Whether to the Gospels or not, I don't know. So verse 7 says, The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third creature had a face like a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now you might see here, like a calf. In the Septuagint, they put it as uh, ox, just like we saw in Ezekiel. So I think this calf and the ox are the same thing, and it's a translation thing. Yeah, so the four living creatures, each having six wings. And so that's where we get, okay, wait a minute, six wings. Everything we just read in, in Ezekiel there had four wings. Those were the cherubim. But here it's telling us they have six wings, full of eyes all around and within. So not just on the rims, but under their, you know, like Ezekiel was saying, all over. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the six wings we see in Isaiah when it talks about the seraphim. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4 that you see there, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, not below like we saw with the cherub, Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. There was no note of the cherub necessarily flying outside of moving back and forth like lightning. So these are just some differences that, I've, that you can see. They were, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that's kind of why we sang that song tonight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I don't think we sang it nearly as well as these guys probably are singing it. I mean, imagine the heavens roaring with that. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where they've had a big organ, and I mean a huge, 
like group of people singing that song. Uh, when we were at St. John in Seward, there were times when that song was sung and it was like goosebumpy because it was just loud and everybody is just belting out, holy, holy, holy. And it is, it, and that wouldn't even touch what we're seeing here. So what a beautiful picture of praise. And that goes on in heaven. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Notice the temple is going to be filled with smoke. We'll see that later in Revelation as well. We also see in the tabernacle, that is what they did. The altar of incense, the smoke from that was there to cover the altar. So the same things are being seen all around here. Well, Anyway, like I said, where Ezekiel sees four wings, Isaiah is seeing six here, and that seems to be one of the differences between the seraphim and the cherub, the number of wings and then either above or below. I don't understand all the differences. A lot of them seem to have the similarities. Um, we know that in Isaiah, it is the seraph that come and grab the coals and touch Ezekiel's lips. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and, and he's scared. And the seraph are the ones that grab the coals. Now, from what we saw in Ezekiel, the seraph must have grabbed, the, the, the coals are among and by the cherubim. So the seraphim must have come down, grabbed the coals, continued to go down, touched Ezekiel's lips, and then he could speak. So just some interesting things to think about as we look at this. Um, but we do see cherub, uh, they're all over in Scripture. We see in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, right, to guard them from getting into the Garden of Eden. The cherub were there. I always just wonder, it's like, man, what would that have been like? Can you imagine? I mean, the flood doesn't happen until 1,656 years after creation, which seems to indicate that that cherub must have been there for 1,656 years. Can you imagine being somebody that was born a thousand years after creation. Hey, let's, let's go up to the Garden of Eden. Let's go check it out. And crawling up the hill to look at this cherub. And, oh, he saw us, he saw us, you know. And, and hiding. I, I, I don't know. But it's something that I think about, that this is a cherub guarding the, the entrance into the Garden of Eden. There's no indication that anything happened to it until the flood. That it would have been there. But... That in itself should have been a huge testimony to the truth of Scripture. And yet, eight people, eight people believed and followed God. That was it. That in itself ought to be a testimony to the fact that, guys, miracles and wonders, signs and things like that don't bring people to faith. I don't care if you see God. You, you were there to see the crossing of the Red Sea. That does not make you believe. Miracles won't. You will either justify, explain, or they become every day. I think that's happened in America. We see every day miracles take place. We, the, the, a miracle of birth. Oh, but we've seen it so many times. We think we understand it scientifically, which is hilarious, so well that... We just explain it away as that. What did they do to explain away that cherub? You know? Uh, I'm sure there was some demonic things. It was just like, well, that's not really that. That's somebody else. 
just a you know? mutation from an eagle. Yeah. It just... It, it just kind of blows my mind to think about that. But anyway, we see him in Kings. We see it in the book of Revelation all over. Um, so another difference, as I said, is the seraphims have two wings they use to, to fly and the cherub roll. <laughs> so um, roll. Another thing is, what does the word seraphim mean? Uh, seraphim means burning ones. Cherub have a similar connection, but with the fact of them like lightning would make sense for them to be called burning ones. Let's see. Um, living creatures. In Revelation here, they have six wings, which leads me to believe that these are seraphim. But yet we also see in Ezekiel they were called living creatures, and that's exactly what we call here. So all of them must be called living creatures as well. Another distinction between angels and people, and this is what we see in Revelation a lot, and that is going to be how they worship God. Um, and I love this, but anytime angels worship, it's always in the third person. The saints always worship in you. You will see that difference. Note every time the angels worship versus the elders in heaven. You're going to note that difference, how the angels will do that differently. Okay? So, um, some of the Jews say why these faces in Ezekiel and whatnot. They say a lion. It's chief among the beasts. Powerful. We know Judah is you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Proverbs 30, verse 30 mentions that the lion is the strongest among the beasts. So we're seeing a picture of strength with some biblical connection there. The ox, um, biblically it's known as uh, an animal of sacrifice and labor to work. And so this is our work that we're supposed to do in the Lord. The man re represents humanity, wisdom, knowledge and understanding, reasoning, and one of the faces is that. We also know God becomes full man. Uh, the eagle is known as one who soars and freedom and uh, just kind of, they say, an everlasting truth, an everlasting message. So... Uh, the message here, holy, 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 in Revelation is also exactly what the seraphim are singing. We don't see that with the cherub. I don't remember seeing that, but I could be wrong. But anyway, it's what we see in Isaiah. So here is one of the interesting things to me as far as the, how the angels worship versus humans worship. And this blows me away as well. I can't imagine what the angels must think of us human beings when we reject the gospel. It has to just be one of those things like we have done many times in this last year looking at politics and the, the whole nonsense of corona. Like, what? This doesn't make any sense. That's gotta be what they think. Look, at it says here in 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they angels spoke of things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit 
sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. In other words, even the angels long to understand and look into the gospel. Because the gospel is not for the angels. You know, we hear about people, oh, you know, she's an angel now when they die. No, don't be demoted. You do not become an angel. As a matter of fact, angels were created for you. As Hebrews says, they were ministers uh, to, to the heirs of salvation. You are created higher than the angels in that, in that sense. We sit here in awe of these angels. They look at you, are in awe of the gospel that was given for you. That If it was me, I would imagine I'd be thinking, why would God die for that what but to me people are always saying why did God do this why did why did God even put the garden of Eden there why did he even put the knowledge of the tree of good and evil in the garden and the answer and I think I've talked about this with you guys before but the answer is without it you don't understand the gospel You cannot understand the gospel unless you first understand your ungodliness. And that's one of the distinctions, too, between man and the angels. It's important to understand that because a lot of people, like within the creation debates that we have, they'll say that, I say, it's a young earth, and it's a young earth because of original sin. If it's a millions of years, then original sin, death because of sin, there's no meaning to that at all. It's a lie. But the Bible says that because of man's sin, that's how death came into the world. Well, they'll say, but there was sin here before man. Because the devil had fallen before he had tempted Adam and Eve. But you see, you can't compare those two things because Satan was created in perfection. Ezekiel 28 tells us that. But then he fell, but his sin is not accounted for like human sin. It is different. We were created with a different purpose. We were created with the gospel for us. They were not. They're created to be ministers to us, to serve us, to watch out and protect us. And so it is important to understand that distinction. He made the angels somewhere between day one and three. We don't know which day for sure, but in Ezekiel, it says when it speaks of Satan being an anointed cherub that walked among the garden of God, it says that you walked among the fiery stones. And on the day they were made, you were created. So the day that God made the precious stones and the fiery stones, those kind of things, are the day, is the same day that it says in Ezekiel 28 anyway, that the angels were made. But let that sink into you uh, how important and what a treasure the gospel is supposed to be to us. That even those angels that we go, oh, wow, can you imagine seeing them, blah, blah, blah. Even they don't have that, and we do. For God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, and that makes them marvel. 
Yeah, and and again, it become we become so accustomed to it that the gospel has become meaningless to many in the church today. That it just seems like another word. The gospel, oh yeah, yeah, the gospel, yeah, I've heard it. Matter of fact, I was speaking with a pastor one time, and he was asking me if there was anything that was uh, new, you know, like that felt like should be preached or whatever. And I said, you know, I said, just a good old gospel message would be, I think we need. And the, and the answer was, yeah, that's just, I know it sounds bad. It's just kind of boring. A pastor. <laughs> Point being, no. Point being, it's true. It is true. If that's all we went to the church and we heard, most of us would be bored. And shame on us for thinking that. That tells us that we're not truly understanding the depth of the gospel. And going back to what I was saying before, is if God had not put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in there, Adam and Eve would have never fully understood the gospel. It took me, I've told you the testimony of me, driving down the road 100 miles an hour with a 9mm Beretta to my head. It took me going through that process to understand the gospel for the first time. I knew it my whole life as far as the words. You know, I, I went to church, my dad told me about all of the gospel. I knew that, but they were just words. And it became reality when I tried to understand, God, how can you forgive me when I told you to go to hell, when I told you to get out of my life, when I begged you to just leave me alone? And now I'm coming back to him and saying, God, please forgive me. I'm like, how? How Will he? Can he? Should he? Okay. And going through that was for the first time I ever truly experienced the gospel. Even though I had it before, it's the first time I experienced it. We need that. Without understanding your sin and how awful you are, you'll never understand the gift that God has given you. The man who has been forgiven much loves much. And I think that is why even the Ray Comfort ministry of Living Waters where... The law is perfect converting the soul, the scriptures say. Without the law that has been removed from church, we don't understand the gospel. And I even think growing up in the church my whole life, it was understanding, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, you know, stolen anything? Have you ever committed adultery? Then I began to realize, wow, I thought I was pretty good, but I'm not. I'm terrible. And so the angels, never having sinned, long to look into that because they just have never experienced it. And they have to marvel at us treating it as if it's an unholy or small thing. Another connection here in regards to these angels and their wings being spread out. Uh, in Exodus, it talks about that in the tabernacle. The Jews have a Midrashic connection, basically an, an understanding of it from 
Scripture, using Scripture, that phrase spreading wings is, that's used to describe the cherub is identical to the phrase used in Ezekiel 16.8 and Ruth 3.9 for spreading a cloak over uh, a woman or spreading like in Ruth uh, to spread her, uh, what's his name? Boaz. Boaz basically covers her. That's the same phrase that is used. Eight, uh, 16, 8, and Ruth 3, 9. Ruthless? That's a good one. So, going back uh Jordan's question last week, or whenever we met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... This, these cherub um, are highly reminiscent of the ancient Middle East uh, pictures that we see in archaeology of placing giant statues and that type of thing, heavenly beasts, in front of their thrones or outside of their gates. And they have all different kinds of names for them that I don't even know how to pronounce, like Lamasu, Shedu, uh, Alad Lamu, uh, Abgal all kinds of things, and I probably slaughtered every one of those. But I want to show you these pictures, and I find this fascinating as well. Um, with a, the idea of a god or a king riding a chariot, being pulled by these cherub-like creatures. The Phoenicians depicted a sphinx driving war chariots. You have in Egypt the sphinx. Um, you can kind of see on this one, what look, you know, animals that clearly we don't have, but would fit more of a cherub type thing than anything else. Second Samuel 22 verse 11 says, He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. So Samuel is speaking of God here riding upon cherub. It kind of reminds you of Elijah's fiery chariot as well. And so all of these things are connected. Now, we know that the world is going to tell you that the Bible got its ideas from these cultures. When that is not true. Historically, the timeline will show you that it's quite the opposite. Especially when the pharaohs, when we correct the Egyptian timeline, they say the god Amu, or not, uh, the pharaoh who worshipped Amun, he became uh, a single monotheistic pharaoh. And they say that's because the, Is or the Israelites learned a monotheistic god from him. Well, the Israelites are long before this guy. We see here a Hiram, king of Byblos, a Phoenician city. Uh, a Hiram is depicted sitting upon his throne here with this winged-like creature. Now, to me, it makes sense because what, did I, what have I been saying? Satan imitates everything. And so the cherub came first in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, 
all those kids that were kind of coming up and crawling up and peeking at these cherub, what do you think that they would want to do then? They're going to want to make cherub and these mighty creatures and they're going to say well i've got my own cherub guarding my throne or whatever the case might be perhaps yeah for the first well that's true the first action figures right there king tut's tomb you have these wings kind of on the throne of it as well so yeah yeah if you went to egypt with us you should have seen that so anyway kind of just those parallels that are, are fascinating to me, how Satan does want to imitate. Revelation 4.9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What is one of the main messages at the throne in heaven? God is creator. What is one of the main messages churches don't want to talk about today, among many anyway? God is creator. It is foundational in heaven to this day. Later on, I think in chapter 16, we're going to see an angel is going to fly through the skies with the eternal gospel. And guess what part of it is? You created all things. It's called the eternal gospel. That's how much creation is tied in to Christianity today. No wonder Satan doesn't want it spoke about in the churches. So... As these cherubim are worship, worshiping, or seraph, or whatever they are, the 24 elders, which, as we talked about before, maybe the, the apostles, because the scriptures say that, and then maybe from the 12 tribes of Israel, or saints, we don't know. I kind of tend to think 12 of the leaders of the, the tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles, but who knows. They fall prostrate, and they worship the eternal God. But what's great about it is when they do, they lay down their crowns, their victor's crowns here. In essence, acknowledging that the authority is on the throne and that everything they have has been given to them by that authority. Yeah. Is 24 used in significance anywhere else in Scripture? Well, like I said, 24,000. I did a search for that. And I was finding, and I don't know why, but on the 24th day of the month, we see many, many times in Scripture where an angel will come and talk and whatnot. Why? I don't know. But otherwise, I didn't see a, a big significance outside of the 24,000 uh, priests that were assigned to be workers at the temple. Earlier in chapter 1, 6, as well here now in verse 11, we're seeing this doxology. Remember I said before it started as a twofold doxology. Now we have honor and power having been added to that. So we have a threefold doxology. In chapter 5, verse 13, if you jump ahead, you'll have honor and power added. So you'll have... 
uh, a fourfold doxology. And then in chapter 7, verse 12, you're going to see it turn into a sevenfold doxology. And so it basically goes from four to seven. But here we have a third, threefold doxology, glory and honor and power. So glory here and praise will be added in the the next time to make it a fourfold. Another thing, um, as far as this casting the crowns goes, I want to just show you some verses that will talk about this a little bit more. Uh, Here's a verse showing you the 24,000 priests that were put in charge of the work of the temple, it says. David said, of these, 24,000 are to be in charge of the work of the temple of the Lord. Of the 38,000, then they were kind of divided up into other areas. But for the work of the Lord, he had 24,000. Okay, so just a possibility why, I don't know, but just maybe a significance there. Um, But casting these crowns, I'm going to show you some just historical things here. The Jews teach that this laying down of the crowns, and not just Jews, but others, it has a lot to do, it had been done many times in the past with other kings or princes as a sign of subjection. Um... I don't know these names, but Tigranes, the king of Armenia, he fell down at the feet of Pompey, and he cast his crown from his head, which Pompey replaced, and having him commanded him certain things, ordered him to enjoy his kingdom. Um, Herod, meeting Augustus Caesar at Rhodes, when he entered the city, took off his crown, and after a speech made to him with which Caesar was pleased, he set it on him again. So they'd take their crowns off, you know, basically kiss up to them, and if they were pleased, they would give them the crown back. In essence, that's the type of thing we are seeing here. These 24 elders are laying their crowns down in subjection. But God is going to, in a sense, put that crown back on them too. We see here what the Jews say. When the holy, blessed God ascends the glorious throne of judgment, which is what we're reading about, the whole family above tremble. And when they see the holy, blessed God, they take their crowns from off their heads and pray and seek mercy for Israel. And immediately he ascends the throne of mercy. Now we're reading about this here in Revelation. We're going to see it in many other places in the New Testament. Which is interesting because this is Jewish stuff from people who don't believe in the New Testament. But they see the same thing. 1 Peter 5, 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That may be more literal than just the figurative way we often picture it. James 1, 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptations For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Just like we see with Caesar, after a speech was given, he then gave them the crown back. If you are approved, you get that crown. 2 Timothy 4.8 Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me 
on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So you're going to get a crown, and you're, who's going to give it to him? But the one on the throne. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? I like that one because what's he calling the crown? Anybody you witness to, anybody that you are helping and lead to the, to the kingdom of God. Paul's saying, you guys, all of you people here, you are my crown. I love that. So if you want to work for something of lasting value in this life, don't make it a boat or a house. Make it the crown of glory, rejoicing, righteousness by going out and spreading the gospel. So the question is, when you get to heaven, will you have a crown to lay down? If you're in heaven, you will. But what is going to be your crown? Is he going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I mean... Are you going to, I mean, when Paul is saying, you know, that you are my crown, are you going to have some people up there that you're going to be able to say that about? You're going to have people coming up, I'm here because of you. You know, I know Jesus, don't theologically, you know, nitpick on me, but you know what I'm saying here. Absolutely. And but God makes it grow. Yep, absolutely it does. That's what half of what evangelism well, ninety-five percent of evangelism or more is planting seeds. Um, Numbers five or nine, chapter five, chapter nine, verses fifteen through eighteen. Uh, actually, chapter ten, verse five says, "That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out." Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. When a trumpet blast is sounded, the tribes camping on the east are to set out. I bring this up because of the trumpet blast. And I talked about this before. My newsletter that I just kind of handed out, uh, that I've sent out, is talking about this very thing as well. When we were in Jerusalem, we talked about this too, that they have found a stone in archaeology, this stone right there, and it was up kind of on the pinnacle of the temple, the high area right here where there was a spot carved out and then that stone, and this is where the priest would go to blow that trumpet. There were six blasts that were blown on Friday evening before the Sabbath. The first one warned the people to stop working on Friday night. The second uh, the first one was to warn the people out in the, in the country, the second one to warn the people in the city, and then the third was to kindle their Sabbath lights. And then there was the last three, a tekiah, teruah, and another tekiah were blown to basically mark the onset of the Sabbath day beginning. Now, every other day beyond Friday, every morning there were three trumpet blasts that were blown. One in the morning to basically, for the, the priests, I guess, one to announce the door of the temple being opened. 
so that the sacrifice was about to begin, which is very significant, as I mentioned in the newsletter, because when Peter talks about the rooster crowing, it wasn't a farm animal. This was called the rooster crow. And the very fact that it was a call to worship, a call that the sacrifice was about to be sacrificed is significant because the sacrifice of Jesus was about to be sacrificed when one of these rooster crows is blown. And then you can imagine what it did to the heart of Peter when the call to worship goes and he had just denied Jesus three times. And just adding to that repentance that he would have felt. But anyway, the Hebrew inscription here basically says to the place of trumpeting. Um, the rest of the inscription is broken off. We don't know what it says, but it's been theorized uh, to the temple or to herald the Sabbath or something like that. But there's no way to know. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will come down with heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet, the teruah, call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So when we hear this trumpet, it is the beginning, in some senses, of our Sabbath. Okay, to announce the Sabbath. 1 Corinthians 15, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. Revelation 1, 10, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So uh, kind of a call there. And that, so when we hear that trumpet here in Revelation, I think it's kind of important. Uh, it, it points to the Lord's second coming or the beginning of our true Sabbath. And trumpets were blown for war too. There's going to be war. God's going to bring war out upon them upon the ungodly. Last slide here, Luke 21, 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So, I just find it interesting that it's drawing near, that he doesn't say it's here when that happens. But uh, when you see the Son of Man coming in great glory, lift up your heads. I don't know how, what near means there, if it means moments to, to years to whatever. But this idea of God of the clouds, um, the Talmud called the Messiah Bar Nafli, and that means son of the clouds. The Jewish Targum calls the Messiah Anani, meaning he of the clouds. When the Lord comes back, he's coming in the clouds. I find it interesting when the temple fell, there were signs in the clouds. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and uh, about some people in Ukraine, and there was a pastor in Ukraine talking on the, the podcast One for Israel and talking about some of the miracles. And apparently then they even saw some things in the clouds uh, before some miraculous events took place. Um, 
I tried to find, see if I could find a picture of that online. I couldn't. I found one in Texas that looked like an angel, you know, that was there. And what, I don't know. But I can tell you this. There are going to be miracle signs and wonders in the sky. Not only of God coming back, but even to deceive the, the elect. To deceive all those who do not have a discerning spirit. There are going to be signs, miracles, and wonders because Satan wants to imitate and mimic everything that God does. And we need to have that discerning spirit because of that. I personally think that some of those deceiving signs and wonders might come in an alien form. UFO, demonic things. Yep, yep. Oh, really? I didn't hear that. Oh. I am. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way when you see him go in, or same way you have seen him go into heaven. Well, Revelation 1, 17, we saw, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So what's interesting, though, is the cloud and trumpet are connected many times. It was the cloud and the trumpet that we read there in Numbers that led the Israelites out into the wilderness here. Okay? Whenever the cloud lifted, when a trumpet blast is sounded, it said here in Numbers. And so I think that there is some significance to that. One of the things I think you need to watch for then is, you know, not just a sign in the sky of a whoa, but him coming in the clouds. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, so when you see all of these things happen, you know the end is near. But he says, if people say, look, there he is. Oh, look, that over here in Ukraine this happened, or over here in Jerusalem, or over here in whatever place this is happening, so, oh, the Lord has come. You're wrong, because his appearing is going to be visible all around the world and heard. And so don't be deceived by the mimics of Satan because in every way, shape, and form, that's what's happening. So um, that closes out chapter 4. That leads us into chapter 5 next week. To me, I think things really get going when we get to chapter 6. Um, right now, we've, we're still laying a lot of groundwork, but to remember here in chapter 1, we saw the description of God, basically ready to take his seat, his throne. Then we saw in chapter 2 and 3, the churches. So he's ready to take his throne, he's sitting, he's describing the churches, I think a time period of history leading us up then to chapter 4, which all that we're seeing is heaven is now being opened, the tabernacle is being opened. And what that's doing is we're going to allow God to basically begin the judgment. The courtroom is now being seated. The 24 elders are there. They're giving the judge glory. All rise for judge. Da, 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 da. They're all rising up in a sense. But now, as we get into chapter 5 and 6, the, the court is about to begin. And that's when I think things get interesting. But up to this point, it's just been an introduction and a laying the foundation and setting us up for that. 
But once the trial begins, uh, it's going to be more interesting than Johnny Depp and, and uh, Amber. Amber. Yeah. So, all right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and just the gospel. Lord, may it never become dull or may it never become just ordinary to us, but may it be fresh and new every single day that we would rejoice in the forgiveness, rejoice in your love, rejoice in the great cost that we have to stand before you that we will never know what it costs to get rid of this sin because it has been done for us. And may we never try. In Jesus' name, amen.